0: It a crisp October evening, a touch under 50, with a high-pressure system jogging in from the west. On, let me try that again. High-pressure system jogging in from the west! Our hero, Ruddy, stubbled, attractive in a way both conventional and unconventional, so that his sexiness was undeniable, with long, muscular legs, near-limitless patience, and the ability to craft seamless prose rivaled only by someone so good that you've never even heard of her. Aw, oh, jeez, all these agita, he grumbled aerodynamically. I wish I could go straight down the shore! which he declared vociferously and sexily, as he walked by the exposed bricks of various shades of brown and maroon along the side of his apartment and inserted the DVD into the DVD player. Suddenly, the music on the DVD menu came on. With his massive, sexy, eight-foot-wide hand flexing the piston-like muscles in his arms, his abs writhing like mice scurrying under his skin, he scooped up the remote he thought about his past, the circuitous route that had led him to co-host Full cast and Crew, which all started, bah, 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 I'm just going to skip over that part, and hit play.
1: Now, for listeners out there, Chris is doing a brilliant writing example of Elmore Leonard's 10 tips. 10 rules for to write good. 10 rules for to be writing well. <laughs> Goodness. Number one,
0: never open a book with weather. You violated that right out of the gate, well, Chris. I thought this was an appropriate exception to make. Avoid prologues. Oh, did I forget to say that it was a prologue? Never use a verb other than said to
1: carry dialogue. No, that's a misprint. That's Do you, definitely. and I mean, you're a writer. Do you, yeah. I, I think these are
0: very good. These you are can, You could gain a lot of ground by paying attention to these 10 yeah. rules. I mean, and like any rules, and I think he even says that in the introduction, where I like, like any rule, like, yeah, you don't like it? Throw it out. Who yeah. cares? But it's a guideline. His most important rule is one that sums up all 10, which is, if it sounds like
1: writing, rewrite it. Yes. Well, I'm a huge Elmore Leonard fan of both the Western material and the crime material. I'm a big crime fiction reader. Mm-hmm. For me, Elmore is up near the top with a Philip Kerr, a John Le Carre, and Elmore Leonard as a master of the form and not a genre writer. Funny, unique, and a very specific way of portraying criminals and law enforcement without the usual barriers that exist between the two camps. And the occasion, of course... I feel bad because I've been listening to the last couple episodes and I feel like every episode, I'm like, this is in my top five. I was going to ask if we can get a definitive top five. <laughs> it's definitely in the top five. I can give really? you a definitive top five at some point, but Outer Sight sure. is 100% wow. in the top five. I've seen it a million times. In fact, I'm such a fan that it occurred to me, unlike a lot of other movies I'm an obsessive fan about, I had never looked behind the curtain of this one. Huh. That's how much I love it. You never like something so
0: much you don't really want to read about its making or no, no, look at is, deleted scenes. It's a strange ambivalence you seem to have because I know you very much like to go behind the scenes in general and yet there are times you've said that sometimes knowing those things takes away from the actual love of it and to leave this one kind of pristine the other night i was home and i I had watched all the stuff which didn't break the spell for me
1: but then it came time to watch the deleted scenes that's the thing i have the hardest time watching with movies that i love sometimes Actually, the deleted scenes were very interesting in this movie mm-hmm. because you get the sense, like re- hearing about Soderbergh, that he's not a director who shoots only what he wants and knows will be used in the edit at all. I mean, he's like, we sh- he shot a lot of stuff. Right. And then the process that he has with his team, with his editor is like cutting it, cutting it until almost the bare minimum remains. Almost every scene in the movie, they talk about, oh, we shot a lot more here. And it's like, in the end, reminds me of the the Kubrick thing we keep citing Mm -hmm. all the time of like taking a big novel and then figuring out how to render scenes from it, lends those scenes a certain something
0: that they wouldn't otherwise have. Because it it is fractured. The screenwriter, who also did the screenplay for Get Shorty, also based on an more Leonard Mm -hmm. novel, was talking quite a bit about the changes that he had made can I ask, Have you, I mean, I know the answer, but I'll ask it anyway. Have you read the original out-of-sight novel? I mean, I've read every Elmore Leonard novel. Mm-hmm. There are so many,
1: I can't remember specifically reading them. But I know I've read Get Shorty, Out of Sight, and one of my other top 100, top five films. <laughs> Some of them have been 100. <laughs> Jackie Brown, based uh-huh. on... Rum Punch. Rum Punch, So A, I'm a crime fiction guy, number one. So I like a crime movie as a result. Mm -hmm. But I particularly like a funny crime movie, a movie that's not portentous. And that's, I think, what I really like about this movie. And I think between Scott Frank, Danny DeVito... Stacy Sher. These are all the people that kind of are responsible for this movie and Get Shorty and Jackie Brown existing. I just think they did us all a great favor in figuring out how to bring this to life and be true to Elmore Leonard's voice, because that's what I think is captured the most in hmm. really Get Shorty and Out of Sight. Those Two movies particularly are the best representation of Elmore Leonard's narrative voice as a novelist.
0: Does the flashback structure, does that happen in... No, but specifically in Out of Sight as well, because uh, like I said, the the screenwriter was talking about, they talked so much about what they changed and adapted and sort of adopting that. Yeah. Scott Frank says it's something that Leonard does. I don't remember specifically how much he does it in the the book. Right. I remember him saying specifically some sort of short flashbacks to contextualize a particular scene where somebody is.
1: It's got so many that guy actors, Luis Guzman, Steve Zahn. It's got big stars doing great subtle work in Mike. Keaton and Clooney. It's got what has to be J-Lo's best film performance ever. I really appreciated her anew. Yes, I guess listening to Scott Frank and Soderbergh talk about how difficult a role it is to cast. You need an actor who can do a lot of different things. And J-Lo really does pull all of those different things off. It reminds me of what they said about Steve Zahn, everybody's favorite lovable kook. If you grew up watching movies in the 90s, They have a great anecdote about him where the first screening, Steve Zahn came on screen. And before he even said anything, people were laughing in the audience as if a really funny friend of theirs had shown up. But he said the great thing about Steve Zahn was his character in the movie had to have that lovable kook side but then after he gets involved with snoopy and witnesses some of the horrible
0: things and participates and
1: participates in he also has to portray this kind of shattered
0: person which steve zahn is really able to do totally he definitely has the the strongest most interesting arc and he does a wonderful job with it i didn't have strong feelings about steve zahn one way or the other i've Mm -hmm. seen like you said he's he's played that first half He's played in so many films throughout the 90s. He was fantastic. Just another Elmore Leonard question. Did you watch, do you watch, have you watched, will you watch Justified? I haven't watched Justified. I mean, I watched a little of it, but I
1: didn't get into it because I think at the time that Justified was getting its first wave of a lot of attention, I think I used that to kind of go back in and read a lot of the westerns, mm-hmm. which I hadn't read. My first exposure to Elmore Leonard was getting into the crime fiction and reading right. all the yes. way through that. Rather than jumping into the series, I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, he's got this whole other thing." And Justified straddles them. Straddles them. Yeah, I in the sense I that it's it sounds of, like it gets away a little bit from the books.
0: Yeah. The reason why I think about Justified is not only because it's another Elmore Leonard thing. I was talking to somebody just a week ago who you know, not somebody in the arts or anything like that, but in conversation, somehow Justified came up and they were, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, rapturous. Oh, rapturous. And yeah. then they wouldn't stop pulling, because we were like at a party, so they were pulling like, this is the guy who turned me on to Justified. Yeah, and yeah. Is, you <laughs> know, and, and they were just, and I haven't seen it. Now. So you were annoyed. No, I was just like, wow, people really seem to love this thing. Yeah. Because to me, it looked like, if you can remember when it came on, yeah. it's FX, Prestige sure. TV, sort of like riding the wave. Let me guess, another like, this one's in of the tough West. Guy, He's but got a cowboy hat. Different. Yeah, it's like... A, it, yeah. Eh. And yet, uh, yeah. people, everybody who I know who has seen it have said, like, it just goes so much deeper than that. Two nights ago, I watched the original
1: 310 to Yuma, which is based on an Elmore Leonard short story. I don't think I'd ever seen the 1957 original. I'd certainly seen the Christian Bale, Russell Crowe. Did you see that 310 to Yuma? Yeah. I thought
0: I thought it was very good. I thought those... I mean, it's such a good story it's underneath a great that seat boy, for a those two. Those two, like, that was a... <laughs> That's, oh, that's a, a real pairing. I feel bad for any production assistance on that shoot. But man,
1: I really, really, really recommend going and checking out the 1957 original with Glenn Ford.
0: That might be a good, you know, we've talked about potentially doing Westerns. That might be a I good know. One to do. There's something about doing a Western that I want to make it just the right
1: one. Yeah. One of the things I like about early Westerns that are really good is that they're sometimes kind of weird in a way that it's hard to describe. Oh, totally. Like we were talking about, um, what's the Jimmy
0: Stewart one? That was just the, man who shot the Man Who Valence, Shot Liberty Balance. which, like, of course, weird. John Wayne is now crawling out of his like, <laughs> it's not the Jimmy Stewart one. It's the John Wayne one.
1: It's got like a weirdness to it. There's something about like American Westerns and 310 to Human is one of them where it's it's a little weird. I love that kind of off kilterness. And I think that's one of those early attempts to capture what Elmore Leonard does in all of his books. It always has that. Um, he's just really good at character and conflict. So I really enjoyed it. It was fun to watch.
0: Oh, good. Um, I have to lay lay my cards out on the table with Out of Sight. Um, Here we go. Yeah, I didn't – I mean, it was fine, but uh, that's what – Breathe, Jason, breathe. Okay. Yeah. No, go ahead. I'm trying to to think like – like I understand why all the president's men would be a fave or Uh – But you don't get why this is a fave? And it's funny. I had almost the exact opposite reaction in terms of watching the back matter and everything Mm -hmm. else. It gave me more of an appreciation – I was like, yeah, I understand it, but it it still doesn't grab me. And actually I find all of the things that that you're citing about, Mm -hmm. like I can sort of see, Mm -hmm. maybe it's also because of the the bigness of what the the stars have become. You mean since this movie? Even at that time, George Clooney was making a very considered adjustment from both the TV career and a few. His first movie famously without the Caesar cut. And also (laughs) the first movie that was trying to be something more than just standard Hollywood fare, which of course the irony is Steven Soderbergh was also doing the same of trying as he put it, to climb out of the art houses. That
1: was amazing. I mean, I had forgotten that first chunk of his career post Sex, Lies, and Videotape and how weird it got. Kafka.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Or schizopolis Have you ever seen Schizopolis? I watched
1: watched Schizopolis Uh because I was like, oh, right. He's that guy who took that (laughs) career-defining moment where you can do whatever you want as a follow-up to Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which started the explosion of independent cinema in America. And we've talked before... Soderbergh's Sundance winning year was the same year that Wendell B. Harris Jr.'s Chameleon Street
0: was in competition. I think it's a year later Is it 89 and that was 90. I think it's 89 yeah. and 90 okay. because in the director's commentary he's yeah. so excited to get to the scenes with yes. Wendell Harris cuz those are amazing. They're great. But then when he got to I thought he was going to have like a whole long thing about how they were long friends. He's like, "Yes, yeah, the guy you know," like and he said specifically, "I was on the jury when Chameleon That's Street right. was in competition." So I think it was the year after that. So he takes that
1: Hollywood capital, which is so hard to get, and he squanders it on Kafka, which did not work, and then nothing worked for quite a long time. The one about the kids in Baltimore or whatever. Life on the Hill or... King of the Hill. King of
0: the Hill. Which every time people would mention, uh, I keep thinking of the cartoon. It was
1: a King of the Hill where he had so much stuff going on and so much crew. And he was like, you know what? My next thing, I'm just doing the way I used to do it with like me and four people and a camera. And then he made Schizopolis, which is so bizarre and feels like filmic therapy.
0: Well, before that was The Underneath. I never saw The Underneath. Which is also, I think, like this sort of a crime caper. I think a little bit yeah. more noirish. Kafka, King of the Hill, The Underneath. These are all flops. And not just flops. Like... Flops, critical flops, commercial flops. Because of sex size and videotape, I was thinking of him as an art house guy. So how can you flop when nobody has any expectations? Oh, you can. But I guess you can.
1: another thing that I think is interesting about this movie is that it taps into a lot of stuff I like when I think about movies, which is, it's easy to say. The reason out of sight is great is Steven Soderbergh. This movie specifically to me is maybe the best example I could think of where an auteur director's vision is center stage. But- Let's go back to Danny DeVito, who's production company Jersey Films is responsible for this, for Get Shorty, and for putting together Scott Frank with Soderbergh at a time where that doesn't make a lot of sense for Soderbergh to helm this, particularly coming off of Schizopolis, which is weird and not going to get you a job in Hollywood. To then have him helm this with all that was on the line for everybody is a really cool, bold choice.
0: I wonder what it was that attracted them to him. Maybe it was the underneath. Maybe it was just he, like Spielberg, is probably good in the room in the sense of like his passion and stuff is so well actually. That I, I maybe think, that's what it
1: was. I thought. He kind of said that it was an executive at the studio. Clooney was already attached. I think J Lo was already attached. Scott yeah. Frank was already attached because Scott Frank had written Get Shorty, which is another movie I love. Get Shorty is a brilliantly funny inside Hollywood kind of satire. Satire and it has great performances and a great. Um, a great Travolta. Yeah. Which also yeah. comes in a weird This is that's the movie he made after Pulp Fiction. Yeah. To think about like where Travolta was pre-Pulp Fiction. I mean, that's been written about so many times, sure. especially with Robert Forster passing away. Tarantino did that for Robert Forster's career as well. Where he yep. put him in this movie that had actually more life-changing results. I mean, Travolta was working and making a lot of money. He was just doing yeah, crap. T- talking baby movies, right. but to me, Out of Sight just has it has that Soderbergh style that he can deliver class, you know. But it's not just him; it's the it is Scott you. Frank. It is the the soundtrack, which is incredible. David Holmes's music is is amazing. Uh, all the he- acting, all the performances, like the, the the editing. I mean, the woman who edited edited fucking uh, what call it, David Lean in the sand with the things with the Lawrence of
0: Arabia. Yeah. I remember that anecdote of yeah. it being offered to him and him balking or at least yes. let's say hesitating. And I think it was good advice. Like things will not always line up yes. so well. That's And this what he was says. a project that was like ready yes. to go. But again, why they wanted to push for Soderbergh, like what was it that made them think he would be the right person? Who knows? I am always impressed when hearing him speak. He's a very funny talker. He's a very funny talker, (laughs) but also very knowledgeable. And he is exactly, I think, this doesn't surprise me about why you like him so much, is he is exactly hitting that same kind of sweet spot, I think, as Steven Spielberg does, of being both populist and an entertainer, Mm -hmm. and yet really putting real thought into it. And the amount of work that it takes to do something and make it look as easy as it does. Yes. Maybe this is why the movie doesn't speak mm-hmm. to me. Is it does feel a little too easy? There's a sort of "so what" for me. And perhaps if people didn't speak of it so highly, I'd be fine. Like, hey, that was a fun mm-hmm. crime caper, and the the comedy does work. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'd I'd grok that a little bit more because <laughs> so much has been built around mm-hmm. it. And I have to admit, this is George Clooney at at my least. Pete Clooney was at the nader of <laughs> like this uh, is he, he's great in this this is like he is not yet as mature and interesting as right. he would become yeah there is yep. the charm there is the obvious talent but to me it seems so like in your face in a way that that i find off-putting
1: let's watch a little of clooney in the first bank robbery scene which is one of the scenes that soderbergh says there's three scenes clooney had to be able to nail these scenes and to your point this was not a assured done deal yeah. for everyone thinking about George Clooney. And Soderbergh has some funny anecdotes where he talks about it's really Clooney's first movie where he didn't rely on head bobbing and ticks of the sort because yeah. that
0: was really Clooney's thing. I mean, he
1: keeps a little bit of he it. Does a little because bit. you
0: know, look, this is—he is he's a charming guy, he's a and charming, that's, that's yeah. part of his. It.
1: Here's a little of where we meet Clooney's character. How
2: can
3: I help you, sir? really see the man talking to your bank manager, has his case open?
2: Oh, that's Mr. Gwinden, one of our assistant managers. Our manager is Mr. Schoen, but he's not in today.
3: But you see the man with the briefcase?
2: Yes. That's
3: my partner. He has a gun in there. And if you don't do exactly what I tell you, or if you give me any kind of a problem at all, I'm gonna look over at my partner, and he's gonna shoot your Mr. Gwynn between the eyes. Now take one of those big envelopes and put as many hundreds, 50s, and 20s as you can pack into it. Nothing with bank straps or rubber bands. I don't want any die packs. I don't want any bait money. Start with the second drawer and then the one over there underneath the money counter. Okay. It's okay. Come on, right on. The key's right there next to you. There you, there you go. No bills off the bottom of the drawer, please. your first time being around? And you're doing great. Just smile, Loretta, so you don't look like you're being held up. And you got a very pretty smile. Give me the, the 20s, I'll take those. There you go, put those in my pocket. There you go. I had to give my partner a sign, now that's good. Now he's gonna wait 30 seconds until I'm out of the building. Make sure you haven't set off the alarm. If you have, he's gonna shoot you, Mr. Gwendo, in between the eyes. Okay. Right. I think that'll do it, Loretta. Thank you. Have a nice day. You
1: too. To me, this is an Elmore Leonard thing. It's the competency. The good criminals in his books, they know. Don't give me any dollar bills off the bottom of the drawer because that's going to set off an alarm. Don't give me a die pack. Start with the second drawer over there and then work your way over. Don't do this. Don't do that. That's because Elmore Leonard and his writing associate did so much research about this stuff. Mm. Part of the joy, if you're a crime fiction fan, is you get to learn a lot about how to do all this stuff. The competency stuff, that's what I think Clooney embodies so well and the avuncularness, even when there's like scary shit going on. That's a hard thing to see. This is a
0: scene he does nail. But I was going to say, when you talk about the competency, that's very interesting. But to me, I had the opposite reaction in terms of when I really clicked into the movie, again, you know, fully, know, because again, I, I don't want to say like, I hated it. No, mm-hmm. I, it's just, it doesn't speak to me. But I will say I did perk up more when he goes outside and his car won't start. Of course. And that's how he gets caught. It's the He's the competency and the charm that it starts out with is fine. But yeah. to me, that seemed like, eh. But the fact that they were willing to undercut it somewhat mm-hmm. with something so clumsy and so was just sort of bad luck. That's what I think of as Elmore Leonard's style, that there's some element of that sort of chaos, and that's life, and sometimes your car doesn't start. You know, all of those things that are very different from the Hollywood conception totally. of of being a criminal.
1: And I also think he writes these characters in a way where they might be charming. It might be fun for us to imagine the cool life of crime in some way, but he never allows that to become over-romanticized, and he always shows you how these guys... Make mistakes, screw up, are screw ups, long for something that they could have if they just structured their life differently, but they don't have the ability to do that for one reason or another. Right. And Foley in the movie, he's one of the best embodiments of that, I think, that ever has been put on screen in an Elmore Leonard derived movie. And I think that's above and beyond where even something like Get Shorty, which is a really hilarious, funny comedy. We don't really get that from Chili Palmer. We don't really get that from Travolta. You know, he's just super cool. He's a super cool gangster. He's got that infallibility that's fun to watch. But I think what's great about Clooney here is the car doesn't start, the willful dumbness that he allows himself to portray when he can't remember the movie quotes in the trunk with J-Lo. I think that's great. Clooney being such a huge basketball player in real life, which is like part of his thing, and then having to be portrayed playing terribly yeah, in prison. I that after that, when great. I was watching
0: it, I was like, I don't know, is that terrible? That, that looked yeah, fine to me. Yeah, it's great. That looked look like good basketball <laughs> like, to you? I was like, you didn't
1: look that bad. So yeah, I could, I could see what you're saying. I don't know how much my appreciation for it stems from loving the genre, but I'm pretty sure a lot of it stems from, actually, my thought, you just said you thought it was sort of easy I actually think the movie is really complicated in terms of how it's assembled. The The Fosse time stuff, the back and forth, it works really well. It's easy to watch. But when you start thinking about it and you listen to them talk about it, it's the last thing I would do setting out to make a movie. Mm-hmm. is set a challenge to say like, oh, no, we can cut to this and just jump in it. And the audience is going to go with us where we are like. It works, but it's almost insane to make the choices in the moment and think that it would work, which I guess is probably why they shot around everything so much, because- Scott Frank's screenplay had some of this jump cut time stuff in it. But I think the reason they talk so much about we shot so much of this scene that we didn't use, they probably just wanted to make sure that if all went wrong, they could make some
0: linear version. Steven Soberg even says how the producers kept pushing him to cut the script. And he's like, yeah, why don't we just shoot the whole freaking (laughs) thing and then we'll cut it in the edit. Uh, But, you know, when I talk about it being easy, I think I meant more that it was um, because you're right. I mean, it's one of the things that makes him a great director is that he does make it look seamless. It doesn't feel challenging to watch it or confusing. But I think what I was referring to when saying that it was easy was more like the thematic depth. He talks a little bit about being worried about like sort of what's next. Yep. George Clooney is kind of the perfect actor to do that kind of thing. And again, later would, particularly with Michael Clayton, somebody being a little bit over, uh, and they even describe it here. Soderbergh says Jack is on the backside of his life. Yes. If there was a peak. He's now in the downhill side of it. That's something that he can do very well. I just think at this point, who are we kidding? George Clooney. He is not on the downhill side mm-hmm. of his life. But I wish it had gone a little bit further into that. Well, I mean, when you get out of prison for
1: your whatever stay and you're in your early 40s or whatever he's portrayed as being, I mean, I don't think you have a tremendous amount of employment opportunities. So, I mean, again, this is so all- take this what is, you can get. This, he should have been the security. Well, this is all stuff within the genre. Yeah, and you're right. Yeah. Like, But I think that's the point. I mean, I think the point is you and I would say, yeah, take the security guard. You're so smart. You're going to work your way out of that. That's kind of what Albert Brooks's character is offering him. It's not to say that the character of Albert Brooks is not presented as a asshole who is lording it over Foley at the same time. He is doing that, but shit, man, you just got out of prison. But there is something. If you something want to, to go straight, totally, you might, you might as well take the job. But there's also something pure and honest about the way. Jack Foley recognizes what's being offered to him and throws it back in Ripley's face. So, I don't know if you want to talk about Albert Brooks. Uh, uh, Albert Brooks, I remember seeing this the first time and being like, what? That's Albert Brooks because he allows himself. I mean, you know, he has this kind of, he's got the bad teeth, the bald wig. He's a white collar criminal. He kind of presages Madoff, right? Or any, um,
0: listen, Madoff
1: and any number of other white collar other criminals. Any other white collar criminals? Well, let's watch a little. You want to watch a little of him? This sure. is the scene where Foley does. So, when they're in prison. Ripley offers Foley a a job when he gets out of jail.
2: Sir,
4: sir excuse me, sir, 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 excuse me, sir. I can't are you go Fucking in kidding
3: there? me? A security guard? What are you hey, stoned?
4: Hey, hey, take it easy.
3: It's all right, Peggy. It's
4: under control. You know something? I wasn't sure that you'd show up here, but I was very sure if you did, you'd throw this job in my
1: face. Let me tell you something. Every single thing you've done with your life up until this point in the real world means nothing. Less than nothing. You're a bank robber. It's not a very marketable skill.
4: We don't see a lot of old bank robbers walking around with a pension
1: plan, now do we? I think you know this. That's why you're here. (sighs) Today I've offered you a lousy job with a lousy wage. You want something better?
0: Why don't you show me you can change?
1: Then I'll offer you something better, a lot better. But until then, my friend, you'll
3: have to earn it. How, Dick, the way you earn it? Married some rich broad, owns a company, selling off a piece of time, then divorcing her? Is this is Newt Rockley pull yourself up by the bootstraps bullshit? Back in prison, a guy like you in a place like that? You were ice cream for freaks. a goddamn dumpling. Maurice? And a dozen other guys would have bled you till you had nothing until you were nothing. I saved your ass. So you'll pardon me if I don't want to sit on a fucking stool all day and say, sign in here, please. Or, hey, pal, you can't park here. All right, Dick. I can't fucking do it, Dick.
2: I'm disappointed in you. Do it.
3: Ow! Oh, hey, here we go. What job do he promise you boys? There's two ways we can do this. Yeah, what are they?
1: And he's thrown out on his ear and he goes in to rob the bank. Yeah. Then we're at the beginning of the then film. Right. One of the great things in the scene is, to Clooney's credit, the scene had a version where there's a glass paperweight on Ripley's desk. And right at that point that we just cut off, Foley picks up the paperweight and hurls it at this massive fish tank, which bursts spectacularly. And Clooney was the one who said to Soderbergh, I think it's funnier if when Big Bruiser comes in and says, there's two ways we can do this. He said, I think it's funnier if I say, oh yeah,
0: what are they? And then just smash cut right away to him getting thrown out on his ear. Yeah. Kudos to George Clooney for having, and Soderbergh points out, really good notes. It made me think, because I watched all of the deleted scenes. Yeah. And it was very interesting. It It really was. Because I don't think there's any of them that I think were like, oh yeah, you should have kept that in or totally. it, was, it was so good. And I think Albert Brooks is great in
1: that. And you might like the book more because I think the Foley character in the book is older to your point right. about sort of not necessarily buying that Clooney is on the downside of his life. But that's, hey, Chris, that's Hollywood. It's a movie star. I mean, come on. Yeah, you got to make the movie. You got to put a star in it. What do you want it to be like? Uh... Why not Peter Gallagher in the <laughs> underneath? Well, we saw how that turned out. What do you want like James Forsyth as like a grizzled old...
0: I- you know, bank robber, all, then Chris is interested. black and white, in French. Shot in black and white. It should have uh, been Harry Dean Stanton. The crime, what have I done with Miller? <laughs> Albert Brooks is so good. So and good. Did you, uh, I think it was on one of the special features. No, I think it was something I was reading after the fact, because he was comparing specifically doing this role to his role in Drive. No, I didn't see that. This might be the first time he's done this kind of thing, yeah. this non-comedy but a criminal thing but I guess he's done it a couple times since. And he was saying the thing about Drive the that Ryan, was The than, uh, Ryan Gosling vehicle. Ryan Gosling vehicle. Nicholas Winding Refn. The thing about this was he's not a physically intimidating guy. Right. You know, he is a white collar criminal. He's full of and shit. They, and they also, you know, they get a lot of comedy out of yes. his, like, weakness and like, yes. how easily he would have been taken. He has there. a safe but he, full of wigs. And yet, he is still able to not only make it funny, but like what he says, you know, there's something to it kind of, but you also hate him for saying it. He's able to do all of those things. And then there's the turn, and I didn't come up with this. I think it was one of the articles you sent to me pointed out when, when he says, so- to skip to the end of the film, when they're breaking into his house, there's the maid that he is having yes. an affair with and she's upstairs. The great J- Nancy Allen. The great Nancy Allen. Another uh, second-timer Another second-timer on, on the FCAC podcast. And uh, Jack Foley's like, leave, get mm-hmm. out of here. He's like, I'm not going to leave, Midge. What do you, what do you, what do you yeah. care? He's like, I love her. Like, just. They don't make yep. too much of it, but just like another little wrinkle added to that yeah. character. That is one of those things that I think in both Elmore Leonard's writing and in what's best about this movie is it's a little bit of a surprise. It doesn't change the whole plot, but it, it just gives it a little bit more texture.
1: We now have a toll-free telephone number. That's and right. And we would like listeners to call us. Let me log in so I can figure out what our number is because I purposely chose a good one. And what we want you to do is something like call us and leave us a message. Do I need to be That's more specific it. than
0: that, Chris? Yeah, you can say anything you want. You anyway, can have suggestions of what we should do, shouldn't do. Tell know. us a
1: movie that you've got to watch all the way through whenever it's on. Things that you hate in movies. I would think that something we would have fun with is if people said, I want you guys to address this trope and let us find some examples to say, we got this great voicemail from a listener and they mentioned this filmic trope. Call us toll free 855-755-755. Five three two two. That's eight five five seven five 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 three two two. That is very memorable.
0: Yeah. Eight five five seven five five five
1: three two two. Yeah. Um now Chris is gonna record a clever voicemail thing so that when you call, you're gonna hear him and he's gonna figure out how to do it. Yeah, video. there's value added. I thought one of the more interesting clips was when he talked about the famous trunk scene and how in the script and as shot, it was one shot. There's like 11 pages of dialogue and Soderbergh resisted all through the process, including up to the first preview, it kind of reminded me of like that sometimes the studio executives are the heroes of the movies that yeah. we love, as unpopular as that is to say. But Soderbergh tells the anecdote that after the first screening where they included this probably eight or 10 minute single shot of Lopez and Clooney talking in the trunk, Casey Silver said, well, you know, you need to do this. And then and of course you need to reshoot the trunk scene. And Soderbergh said, I know. And so they went and did reshoot it. With cuts, which works so much better. Oh. I mean, it's fascinating to watch it, though. And he does say in the thing, he's like, it works as like a short
0: film, but she's moving so much. You would think that a long cut like that would make it feel more claustrophobic because you don't leave. But no, it actually made it feel airy and yeah. kind of easier for them. You, you didn't get a sense of how long they had been driving, or anything, and, yeah. and it didn't feel as cramped as it did when cut out. Another one that was a Clooney thing it was like kind of get – he ad-libbed the – I'm not going to take any more of your shit.
1: Her facial reaction when he does that feels kind of natural because I think it was maybe an ad lib in the moment and she's kind of laughing a little bit in the moment, but it it is his charm about allowing himself to appear stupid. Because I think as an actor, Chris, you told me, I mean, this sounds kind of dumb to say, but I always kind of think it's brave for an actor to allow themselves to appear less than smart in a scene like that. Even though you get it, you're George Clooney, you read the script, you know the part, you understand this is your character. In the moment maybe it's just me. I feel like I'd always want
0: to choose being, you know, blindingly clever as opposed to kind totally. of willfully I mean, but, stupid. But of course, it's a risk reward thing and putting yourself out there. It's a risk because also if you look stupid and it's funny, it can work. But if you look yes. stupid and just look stupid, when you play it closer to your chest and you don't make the big risk, you'll at least have something that they can yeah. work around. Right. It's the same kind of thing. Like, you know, when actors become very proud of putting on weight and stuff like yeah. that, like there is something about wanting to- Look, do, I've do, got no vanity. As you glamorize film yourself. me. And again, I think that's something that Clooney grows into yeah
1: well here's a little this is part of how we meet J-Lo Jack's just escaped from prison yeah, you don't seem all that scared
2: of course I am
1: you don't act like it
2: what do you want me to do scream I didn't help much anyway no I'm just gonna sit here take it easy and wait for you to screw up
3: <laughs> not like my ex one
2: you were married
3: just for about a year you could take a few days not like we didn't get along, we had fun, we just didn't have that thing, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, spark, you know? Gotta have that.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: We still talk, though.
2: So. Sure. This is not gonna end well. These things never do.
3: Turns out I get shot like a dog, it's gonna be in the street, not off a goddamn
2: fence. You must really see yourself as some kind of Clyde Barrow, huh?
3: You I mean a Bonnie and Clyde? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The part in the movie where they get shot when it's uh, Warren Beatty and... Uh, 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 Faye Diane, Dunaway. Faye Dunaway. Yeah. I like it in that movie about TV. Networking.
2: Yeah. She was
3: good. Yeah. That guy says he's not going to take any more shit from anybody.
4: Peter
3: Finch. Yeah. Peter Finch. Not going I'm uh, uh, mad as hell and I'm not going to take any more of your shit. That part where they get shot, I remember thinking to myself, thinking, mm, "That would not need such a bad way
1: to go if you had to. I mean, that's a great scene. They're great together. Yeah. The cuts work great. I'd seen this movie so many times. I don't know why. I'd always thought that their orientation in the trunk was to the back of the car. Hmm. But now when I watch the scene, I realize their orientation is they're facing the back of the back seat. Right. This is gonna be really confusing for people. I would suggest you get a piece of paper
0: and sketch out what <laughs> I'm talking about right now. Better yet, if you have a car, put this on speaker, go, go in into it. your trunk, get in and the then trunk, pull the door closed behind you. I always think sometimes in movies,
1: like, does that matter spatially? Do you have to think about that stuff <laughs> as a
0: director? If if for nothing else, just the consistency of like when you're getting in, to turn around and yes. back into it wouldn't make as much sense. And you know, they're getting in. You know <laughs> Yes, that's true. When <laughs> you get <laughs> in, you're getting quickly. in. So that's a great scene. I think you need the Clooney thing. He is best there. He is best at that opening scene because that charm that is his kind of go-to yes. works super, yes. super well. Yeah. But it's just then when it's in sort of more normal scenes, when it's not actually called upon, the fact that it's there <laughs> almost becomes distracting. Hmm. Uh, though, here's something that also is potentially distracting. It's a pity that J-Lo doesn't have more to do. What? Just because she's awesome. She, she, she has a, a tremendous amount to do in the sure. movie. Sure. I just wish there was more. I thought she was so fantastic. And she is somebody who's star power yeah. and charm. Any adjective you can describe her, mm-hmm. they're always all there. And she moves seamlessly from one thing to another so much. It's its such a freaking joy to watch. One of the things with Elmore Leonard in these novels is there
1: are always five, six, eight characters yeah. that exist in orbit with each other. And it's not just her story or not just Foley's story. Right. I guess in a way, yes, we are following really Buddy and Jack as they are the device through which we move through the other characters as an actress role. It's great. It it allows her to be competent in her job. There are so many scenes where she displays the same competency that Foley displayed in that bank robbery scene. Soderbergh got really kind of heated in a joking way with Scott Frank on the commentary track where at the end of the movie where she famously shoots Foley in the leg because he's basking for a suicide by cop. And she's like, Jack, I'm not going to shoot you. And he has a little speech and she does finally shoot him in the leg so that he's not mortally wounded. And Scott Frank said something like, I always thought he should have pulled out his gun and pointed it at her too. And Soderbergh was like, why are you crazy? She would have blown him away right away. She's yeah. a federal marshal. Yeah, whatever else he is, whatever night they might have shared. That's the first shared. thing. Yeah. She's gonna, and like, I love that because I think he's saying the integrity of the character Is such that you can't violate that for a scene. It's kind of, that was a great little moment because you can feel the screenwriter is like, ooh, tension created by two people pointing guns at each other. And Soderbergh is saying, we got to be true to who she is. Her character, that's first and foremost, she's a law enforcement person.
0: As much as we see standoffs with cops and stuff in the movie, no, the fact that, like you said, somebody pulls a gun on a cop, they're going to shoot. Yes. That actually (laughs) doesn't heighten tension. Yeah. diminishes it because,
1: because there's a trigger. And also, Chris, I know you're a woke millennial snowflake. Yes, proud of it. When they shot the love scene, she's the one who leads the action. He's not the one who's like, hey, great, we're in a hotel. I'm stripping naked. You follow suit. He's reacting to what she takes off. He only jumps into the bed after she jumps into the bed. And this is another thing that Soderbergh says he had to fight even with his film editor. She was like, it's not very hot. There's no action. Oh, she said, they don't really go at it in her British way. And he said, yeah, that's like, that's what we got. I guess it was one of those points where he hadn't shot some of the stuff that maybe a studio like, hey, executive would be like, wait a minute. A little more. I have uh, J-Lo and Clooney <laughs> and like, I'm not going to see skin, any skin. Well, huh? you, you do see George, his basketball toned upper torso is yes. on display and you get to see J-Lo in her underwear. Yeah,
0: uh, But it's not a gratuitous scene. And he says, and then he's like, I find that really. The way he uh, explained it is once somebody takes their clothes off, you're watching a documentary. Right. And I think there is something to that. And he Uh, loses interest. So also like attention kind of thing. Because it does trigger that once the clothes are off, there's kind of nowhere to go. Similar to pulling the gun. You're looking for reasons to not do it. And, uh, you know, this does bring us to this scene because the sex that we don't see them have uh, happens after this scene in a bar where... Brilliant. He finds her and they have this conversation where they both take on these other identities and they flirt and they go back and forth between being who they really are. And Gary and, and Celeste. And Gary and Celeste. You know, he was saying that it was written in the script as being sort of two discreet scenes. You know, they do the yes. Gary and Celeste in the bar, then they go upstairs and they they have sex. But here you have them cutting back and forth between them talking to each other and what's going to happen. One, you get this fantastic thing of you get to see the actors, again, playing two different things you get like literally two opposing sort of flavors because in the conversation they're both so guarded which Mm -hmm. is part of what the flirtation is and then when they're like it does look like a pretty fun sex. you know like it's sexy in this way but it's also like they're laughing it's not over serious they're unguarded they're unguarded
1: I always forget to remember how essential the three clownish guys trying to pick her up beforehand are in that bar scene. There's like three guys at a hotel bar. In in turn, each of them tries their best line on her, and she's just totally uninterested. Yeah. And then, of course, Clooney shows up, and all we see at first is just from the neck down, his reflection in the window, and then the scene kicks off. I buy a drink?
2: Yeah, I'd love one. Sit down. I'm Gary. I'm Celeste. It takes forever to get a drink around here. There's only one bar. mattress. Oh,
3: don't go. Those guys body.
2: Oh, they're fine. I mean, you just got here. help yourself you like bourbon i love it
3: we got that out of the way tell me celeste what do you do for a living
2: yeah, i'm a sales rep and i came here to call in a customer but uh, they gave me a hard time because i'm a girl
3: is that how you think of yourself
2: as a sales rep as a girl yeah i don't have a problem with it
3: i like your hair i like your outfit
2: Actually, this is my second favorite outfit. I had a first favorite, but it got ruined and I had to get rid of it. You did. It smelled.
3: Really, having it cleaned didn't help.
2: No. (laughs) So tell me, Gary, what do you do for a living? How far do you want to go with this? not yet. Don't say anything yet.
3: I don't think it works for somebody else. Gary and Celeste, what do they know about anything?
2: Well, this is your game I've never played before. It's
3: not a game. It's not something you play.
2: Well, does this make any sense to you?
3: It doesn't have to. It's something that happens. It's like seeing someone for the first time. Like you could be passing on the street and and you look at each other and for a few seconds there's this kind of a, a recognition. Like you both know something, the next moment the person's gone and, and it's too late to do anything about it. And you always remember it because it was there and you let it go and you think to yourself, what if I had stopped? What if I had said something? What if? What if? It may only happen a few times in your life.
2: Or once. Or once.
1: I mean, and then we're into this intercut scene, the mastery of the music coming in, cross-cutting and the freeze frames, which Soderbergh famously uses these freeze frame right. moments throughout the whole movie. And... This scene particularly has just such a commanding use of them. And then after this scene, he says he realized he doesn't use them anymore because the movie has caught up to itself. This scene is incredible, Chris, even though he's the first person to admit he completely cribbed the concept of the cross-cut scene. From From Nicholas
0: Rogue and Don't Look Now or Don't Look Back. With Julie Christie and and sex symbol Donald Sutherland. (laughs) Canadian sex scene, which segment. horrifyingly always gets
1: listed as like the number one hottest sex scene ever filmed. I've never I, seen it. Have you? Oh yeah. Is it that hot? Yeah, it's pretty hot. I can't imagine Donald Sutherland doing yeah. anything. I just feel pasty, pimply, Canadianly. Honestly, <laughs> no, no, no offense to our Canadian friends yeah, we, in the north,
0: but Julie Christie is able to make up for whatever okay sure. deficits. Uh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but in that scene, uh, Nicholas Rogue cross cuts between the sex scene itself and them getting dressed afterwards. Yeah. Soderbergh goes the other way, exactly. where he does yeah. it beforehand. There's some funny moments in the commentary track between Soderbergh and Frank. Soderbergh, if you don't know him, you could probably listen to the track and think this guy's kind of a dick. But I think he's not bothering to explain that he and Frank know each other
0: well enough to give each other a hard time. Right. And there seems to be it, goes both, it ways, goes both ways. So you figure like, okay, they must. But Since like nobody's hating anybody.
1: But I love that Scott Frank like had such ownership over the screenplay that he frequently would call up Soderbergh after screenings and be like, what the fuck? Yeah. They had these little skirmishes to kind of get where they arrived at. Yeah. We got to play a little of Don Cheadle. His performance to me, this is also so Elmore Leonard to me. I think one of the other cool things I love about the movie is the prison stuff, particularly, feels real. Mm-hmm. Like it's we know we're in movie prison. But it feels real, even just in backgrounds, because the way they shot it with actual cons yeah. or ex-cons in actual prisons gives you a little bit
0: of that flavor, even when they're just standing around that you can't fake. But you know, what's funny is like, because I had the same reaction, but coming from the opposite direction, because sometimes you'll see like a prison thing specifically, and they aren't directed to death. And yeah. everybody has like a, like a yes. knife sticking out of their <laughs> face. And like, there's nobody, there's no light. And no, what do you mean? I, That's what prisons like. <laughs> <laughs> but these prison scenes looked much more real than that. They weren't such such apocalyptic hellscapes, yeah. uh, as to again to feel like a place. That they were really, more banality of evil prison. That's a perfect way to put it.
1: Uh, here's Don Cheadle as Snoopy Miller. Rip,
5: rip. What the deal is, baby? I'm Maurice. Oops, <laughs> I don't know. Make a fit. There you go. Fuck it. Man. <laughs> That's your little fishies for you. Oh, good. Not so fast. See, starting out there's gonna be an across-the-board cost-of-living increase, you know what I mean? What? You know, when I got put in here a year ago on credit card fraud, I didn't really get no props for that, you know, but ever since I shanked that loudmouth pussy in the yard the other day, <laughs> it's like my Dunham & Broad Street around this bitch done shot way the fuck up, man. Actually, it's uh, Dunn & Brad Street. That's the, um,
1: well, I've, I've heard it both ways.
5: The point is that the price is going up around this bitch, too, okay? So get your little black book out. We got some business to talk about. All right, for little fishies, what I said it was going to be? 2,000. 2,000? Yeah, okay. Now they're going to be 3,000. Come on. Now you... they're going to be 3,000. And that uh, saltwater shit that you put in your eyes, which, what do you call that? Bush Bush bushy lawn. Bushy lawn? Yeah. Yeah, all right. That bushy lawn shit, that's 300. I need it. Yeah, you do. And uh, that extra pillow you want, I'm going to get that for you. But that's going to be like five C's. Fine.
3: Hey, sign says shut the fuck up or can't you fellas read?
5: The fuck you talking to, man? You got a problem over there, Foley?
3: Yeah, I got a problem. is the dumbest fucking shakedown in the history of dumb shakedowns. 500 bucks for a
5: pillow? That's right. It does seem a little high, doesn't it? Shut up, dick. Must be a nice pillow. Full goose down. But you still. How much for your company and chow? My company? Come on, man. You know I watch this motherfucker's bat. That bat, how much? That's a C note. You're smart, Ripley. You'll tell this guy to
3: fuck off.
4: Really? Oh, I. I
5: I don't know. (laughs) First of all, if he kills you, then he's gonna get nothing. Well, uh, the man don't just have to die, Foley. I mean, he could. Accidentally hurt himself falling down on something real hard, you know, like a shiv or my dick I'll pay it. I'll pay it. Don't worry
3: If he falls on anything Snoop, then they're gonna transfer his ass out of here faster than you can throw a fight and you're still gonna get nothing
5: (laughs) You know last time I checked man, this shit over here ain't got nothing to do with you. Folly, why don't you go outside, man? Smoke a cigarette or some shit.
3: I don't smoke Oh, you heard the man. Why don't you get your punk ass up out of here? Uh
5: Uh-oh. you fucked up now, man. That's Jaime, protégé of mine. Ranked number 32 in the federal prison system. 32? That's right. Out of what, 20? (laughs) That's funny. Man, kick this cracker's ass. (laughs) What's going on here? Uh, Nothing, you know, just reading this fundamentalist shit. We just got all excited and
1: everything. Clear out of here. Now, Don Cheadle's amazing. Yeah. I mean, his ad libs in there. Soderbergh says he threw in a lot of that kind of dialogue himself in some places. It's so
0: good. Yeah. I just love the little button where they pretend to be reading the book. Don Cheadle is just fantastic in everything. What's funny is he doesn't look particularly physically intimidating, no, and yet he, he like inhabits this character in such a way that it, that he brings that. Did you
1: hear the funny anecdote where when they were filming some of the boxing scenes in Detroit, Elmore Leonard came on the set, and by that point in the movie, Soderbergh and Cheadle, or Cheadle had, had sort of said, because at that point, Snoopy is out of prison, in this scene that we just watched, he's wearing his do-rag. And he was supposed to be wearing that through the movie. And he said, you know, guys okay, just got out of prison. Like now he's trying to style himself. He's trying to, you know, be the man. Like he's not gonna wear that prison shit. Yeah. Sort of said, Okay, all right, I'll buy it. And he said that was the one day Elmer Leonard showed up, and literally the
0: first thing he said was, I hope he's got his do-rag before he saw Cheadle on the set without it. You know, he's gotta understand though that it's such a different medium. Yeah. You know, I can see an author being like, Oh, that's his thing, that's how I remember it. But then of course, to see it out there, it loses like, you know, Don Cheadle's uh thing of just like yeah, I'm in a different place. I'm in a different. I'm trying to be. I'm gotten yeah. rid of the name Snoopy. All of that. Well, of course. How many sort of bad filmic adaptations has Elmer Leonard lived through? Probably yeah. by
1: that point in his life, he's sort of like the Stephen King of crime. I was going he's
0: got to be second, second only to Stephen King. And just if, the, if the he sheer is second, number. if he is second, you're absolutely right because it goes back. I mean, this long. thing goes I mean, back. back like 1957. Said, not, not just the crime stuff, but also all the, Western. the, all the, the westerns with
1: Paul Newman. Oh, I would imagine there's probably more than King. I mean, shit, 1957 to present day. I mean, yeah, (laughs) it's a lot. Yeah. Um, One of the other great things that I love, and we've talked about this before, I think the only recorded instance in film history where one character appears in two unrelated movies, Michael Keaton's character, Ray Nicolette, The married FBI agent that J. Lo's character is having an affair with also appears in Jackie Brown as Ray Nicolette because the character appeared in those novels. Soderbergh tells the story of how they arrived at this place because the character was in the books. I guess he had appeared here and they saw it like, oh, can we do this? And he said Tarantino brought him over and they showed him all of Keaton's stuff. And Jackie Brown, he's a much more central character to everything that's going on. He's in the whole movie. Here he's really only in one scene, Literally, two scenes. Literally, one, one oh, I guess scene. There's one scene? scene?
0: There's one actual scene, and then there's uh, a TV thing so that you good. see.
1: And so Tarantino showed him all the stuff, and they tried to figure out, like, can it work? And there's two things in the movie I don't know why I'm protecting the last one because it's, <laughs> it's not a spoiler. I guess for a movie that came out in 1998.
0: I mean, you but guys, I, I don't know. I'm protective. You, of listeners, it. you've had your chance. Let's just. I'm going to
1: save it till when we get there. There's another great actor that has a small cameo right. in the film. Apparently, they both did it for free. I wonder what's the line because it sounds like it's one day, if that, for both of them. Yeah. But Keaton did it for free. Yeah. He's sort of like, yeah, I'll come, I'll come do that. It shows up on location. I think they were in they were in Miami, right? Mm-hmm. Which is her father brilliantly played by Dennis Farina. Keaton is so fucking good in this, Chris. I, it just, I could watch that scene over and over again. Everything that's going on, this is actually one place where they didn't shoot a lot more around this scene, but it has that feeling probably because Keaton is so fucking good. And he'd already portrayed the character to the nth degree in another film. Yeah. So maybe this that is why- This is just why. like
0: a, a coda, a little extension of It's a continuation,
1: but the way he embodies Ray Nicolette, who is the kind of FBI agent who literally is wearing a t-shirt that says FBI. <laughs> Wyatt Earp is here. Hey. Hey. How you feeling? Good. Feel
3: better? Yeah. Did
2: Rick take care you. Uh, He took a week off to take care of me, and he's worked on his boat every day since. Dad, this is Ray Nicolette. Hey, hi.
3: hi. Pleasure to meet you. I heard a lot about you. Likewise.
2: Ray's working with the FBI task force on the prison break.
3: I see that. Tell me, Ray, do you ever wear one that says undercover?
2: No. How's it going? Sit down. OK. <laughs>
3: Good, good. Cut. Was it Foley? Was it off a tip? Yeah, yeah. somebody spotted out in this hobo camp near the airport, you know, called in a number. I knew it, as soon as I saw there was a reward.
2: Babe, was it Foley? No,
3: but ah, It's one of the Cubans. We went in there in a full slot, two choppers, is that whole deal? And Linares goes, let's start shooting, so we took him out. I don't know how Chirino got away, but he did.
2: And Foley hadn't been there?
3: You no, know, this place was strictly Cuban. You know, if Fully had a ride, he must have his own agenda. You know what I mean? He seems to be the only guy who kind of knows what he's doing. Uh-huh.
0: Excuse me. It's so oh. fun uh, God, what he's it. doing. Because he's like, you know, there's that long pause after like yes. the, the undercover joke. But he's like, so is he dumb? Does he not get it? Yes. Or is he,
1: Keaton's allowing the character to be just dumb enough to not get the joke in the moment, but smart enough to have it sink in 10 seconds later in that reaction yeah. shot. And as he sits down and he realizes, holy shit, he
0: is fucking with yeah. me. He kind of has this funny laugh on his face. Which becomes sort of the arc also for the scene as, uh, you know, because Dennis Farina's character is not <laughs> happy that his daughter is sleeping with this married man. Dennis Farina, also in Get Shorty. Yes. Um, also in anything that calls him. Any, yeah. Did
1: I ever tell you the story? Dennis Reina filmed in our apartment here in New York. If I could ever sit down through the 5,000 seasons of Law and Order and find the scene, <laughs> I would, because it'd be great <laughs> to have. But they were filming in our neighborhood and they slipped a flyer under and said like, hey, we're looking for a location. And we let them film. And it was, a, so it was cool. a brief scene with him interrogating someone in our living room who was supposed to be a therapist. Uh-huh. I never got to meet him because we were banished from our own home, as Hollywood does when they invade your house. God damn it. But man, Keaton, he's a guy who's really into law enforcement, right? He's a certain type of <laughs> law enforcement person. Like I said, he's wearing an FBI t-shirt, the leather jacket. You know, he's so into it. And the scene you mentioned before is such a brilliant throwaway where then he's on TV at the hobo camp that he was just describing. And he's got the full black jacket on. His, yeah,
0: bulletproof vest, bulletproof vest for all
1: vest. these hobos. <laughs> It's it's such not a threatening situation, but he's like pointing and talking to the camera. (laughs) It's so brilliant. And it's such a, again, charm. If I think about what it is I love about the movie, it's kind of like Paul was talking about in the uh, time trap episode, like something that you can watch where it, you're just you're, you're you're in a different place, you're yeah. in a filmic place. To me, that's this movie. There's a charm. Totally. Everybody's sharp and funny, and it's put together in such a way that I never get tired
0: of looking at the art of how the film is assembled yeah, not- and the joy of the performers. Viola Davis, oh, uh, I just love her in general. She's and amazing. It came up recently and reminded me of that in Fences, particularly, mm-hmm. like her performance in that. Uh, I guess it was 2016. Is like one of my favorite screen performances yes, mention ever. That. And then she was in Widows, which we covered, mm. which, although we didn't love yes. the movie, she She's was always amazing in it. And this is a role that is so different from those. There's just so much that she is doing. She is just such an amazing actress. There's
1: a great thing where Scott Frank says, you know, she has this scene with J.Lo and with Isaiah Washington, where she's sort of the beleaguered, put upon girlfriend, sister who is being taken advantage of by Snoopy Miller and by Isaiah Washington's character, who are really dismissive and cruel. And, and her dog has just died, and she's sad about that. They're ostensibly on opposite sides of the law, but Karen Cisco and Viola Davis's character have this connection as women. You're lawyer? No, I'm not.
2: I'm looking for somebody named Glenn Michaels. Glenn. I don't know any Glenn. Oh, you said he stayed here last November. Here in this house? He said he stayed with Maurice.
5: Well, he ain't even here that much. I'd like to know where he goes, but at the same time, I don't want to know, you understand? Yeah.
2: Uh, You said your dog was killed? Got run over by a car. What'd you call him? It was a she named Tuffy. What do you think I might find Maurice, Moselle?
5: I don't know, the gym, the fights. I know he don't miss the fights. Having some tomorrow night down at the State Theater. He used to take me. The
2: State Theater. Why
1: are you asking all these questions about Maurice?
2: She's looking for a man named
1: McGlynn. Did I ask you? There's a bond, a feminist bond against the idiocy of men, frankly, right. which is kind of like what then occurs in that amazing scene with Isaiah Washington. Scott Frank says, like, there's a thing she just does with her eyes. She kind of cuts her eyes and looks away, sort of ashamed by the emotion she feels over being sad about her dog being killed. Yeah, It's one of two scenes where J-Lo has such an interesting scene with another woman in the movie. And this is another thing I really loved about JLo. She has this kind of, like, they're women together in their scenes, which I think is an interesting thing to portray when... She She's an investigating police officer trying to get to the bottom of this criminal thing. I don't know if you have
0: more. I know mean, I mean, you've got
1: three hours worth. Here's the problem.
0: I feel like we can't do the movie and not play Luis Guzman. There's a great scene between with him, Jennifer Lopez, and oh, Catherine Keener. That's the one I was another, play. Uh, just sort of love her. Here's another thing about a movie that is now 20, 21 years old. These were people besides George Clooney. Everybody was at sort of and wasn't quite where they are today. Yeah. Uh, and Catherine Keener doing a very small role like this. You see why she would go on to become uh, a big star. Luis Guzman
1: is great. I mean, let's just play a little. Catherine Keener is Adele Foley's ex-wife. Guzman, who Soderbergh says is just one of his favorite actors, plays Chino, who's one of the escapees
0: from prison. P.S. that Foley sort of jumps onto (laughs) their escape plan, ruins it, but also (laughs) then uses it as a way to get out himself. Yes. And so he's trying to track down Foley.
1: So he has tracked Adele down in a Brilliantly clumsy fashion, <laughs> and JLo happens to be conducting an interview just before he arrives at the apartment.
5: I was in Medicine in Cuba, they used to call me Manuelito and Medicio Mira, can you please open? I'm not dressed. I'm, I'm a good friend of Jack Crowley. You know Jack?
0: Who are you? Jose Chirino. Or, or, or maybe you heard Jack call me Chino. Bueno, I'm the same guy. Tell him that he
2: has to wait in the hall, that you have to get dressed. Say it loud.
1: Wait in the hall, you have to get dressed.
5: Mira, mira, you tell me where I can find Jack, and I don't bother you no more, nana. Come on, please. Hello? I don't know where he is. I'm the guy that helped Jack escape from prison. Mira, please open his fucking door. Go away, because I'm going to call the police. Coño, what you gonna do that, man, to a friend, man, just so you can't bother the Jack? That's it. That's it. it, Oh, that's it. That's it. Give me here. Ow, 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 ow,
2: Go Mira, please, please. Give me your hand. Adele, uh, you let Adele. i a marshal you under arrest. Give me a bag Adele. Oh,
5: Mira, Mira, please, please. I think there's a misunderstanding here. Can you get nice bite, Mira? Let's say we just forget about it, and then, okay? We forget about this, I go Shut home. Shut up. Oh, who the hell told you Give I me the other had, hand. Mira? Give me your okay, other okay. hand. Okay, I, okay, go I, go oh. I gotta go make pee pee. Oh, oh, Wow, Wow, you are
1: mean. A lot of that just improvised by Luis Guzman
0: on the floor, like nice
1: bag. Yeah. When he points it to her handbag. I I gotta make pee
0: pee. But then what goes out to it, uh, (laughs) because Catherine Keeter's character is a recently unemployed magician's assistant. Yes. And uh, then while Jennifer Lopez is calling her superiors, uh, he's like, hey, how do they do the saw the lady in (laughs) the and they're going back and forth, cutting between J-Lo on the phone and and then trying to explain the uh, magicians. And they say the thing that that's another
1: place where like they shot the whole thing of her explaining how to do (laughs) the sawed off the legs trick. And then in the edit room, they just kept paring it down, paring it down, paring it down. And it actually works brilliantly because they just cut away from it. She's on the phone with Wendell B. Harris Jr. worming her way onto the task force. And then they cut back to Guzman on the ground and he goes, fake legs. Mm.
5: Thanks very much legs how are you gonna stop Ay, coño. Thanks a mm. how do they twinkle their toes and
0: they man well spoiler for, 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 anybody, for who's, any magic tra- anybody who's been for holding magic the show. magic of you know what's funny is I, now I'm thinking she worms her way onto the task force yeah. to go bust Foley and Buddy yes. at Buddy's place Yes, and similar to sort of the security guard thing that happens to Foley like she comes thinking she's going to have an important True. job on this yeah, bus, you're right. and then the person in power demotes her gives her like the shit job like you wait yes. Downstairs and radio if there's if there's a problem. Yeah. It's a parallel between them. And you're right. One of the interesting things about this movie is it does not end with them running away being happily ever after. No. You don't even know if they will ever meet each other again or anything like that. Yeah. But to treat like their traction as you kind of understand, besides they're both being two of the most beautiful people ever mm-hmm. made, uh, you understand what they see in each other. Yes. And in neither case mm-hmm. does it reduce either the person who is attracted or the the one that they are tra- – they're not just attracted to one small thing about a person. It's, you see that there's some overlap in both interest and in their, their experiences even if they're on the opposite sides of the law.
1: And I think that's the thing that gives – Elmore Leonard's books, some of the weight we aficionados of the genre enjoy is that sense of connection Mm -hmm. that characters often find in books like this is a little bit at odds with kind of the hard-boiled crime elements that surround them. But it's really that heart. It's that tough, cynical, wisecracking exterior that masks a need for human connection. And I think what Elmore Leonard does really well in the books and what this movie captures really well, the scenes between her and Jack Foley are really interesting and really sexy. And you do feel the connection Connection, And yet you also see, this is a federal marshal who's attracted yeah. to criminals. And Wendell B. Harris, I mean, please, people, go and listen to our episode on his film, Chameleon Street, which is one of the great American independent movies yes. ever made. It's a vitally important link in filmmaking in black cinema. And Wendell B. Harris Jr.
0: is such a fascinating and interesting actor, writer, director. Yeah. If not for all of those other things, just his acting alone, like it's such a pleasure. And there are only, he's only got three freaking credits. I know. You don't get a lot of opportunities to see him. And if you've already seen, uh, whatever, what's this movie? Out of Sight, your next best chance is Chameleon Street. And then of course there's Road Trip. Here's a little Wendell and J-Lo. If we don't play it, who will?
2: Next thing I knew. The paramedics were pulling me out of the car. Mm-hmm.
4: There's a couple of points I keep wondering about have to do with the two guys who grabbed you. Buddy, is it? And this fella, Jack Foley. I swear the man must have robbed over 200 banks in his time.
2: Really? Mm-hmm. he told me he didn't remember how many he robbed.
4: So you talked to him?
2: In the trunk, yeah. Downstairs.
4: And what'd you talk about?
2: Different things prison, movies.
4: This fella holds you hostage. You talk about movies?
2: It was an unusual experience.
4: You know, Foley made me think of that fella, Carl Tillman, the one that you were seeing, it turns out, the same time he was robbing banks. You recall that?
2: And what happened to Carl?
4: Well, the time came you shot him, but you didn't shoot Foley or the guy with him. They're unarmed, you had a shotgun, and you let them throw you in the trunk. Okay, now you got your Sig in your hand, and you say in the report that you couldn't turn around, you had you pinned down, but when the trunk opened, how come you didn't cap the two guys then?
2: What do you work on most of the time, fraud? Go after crooked bookkeepers?
4: Karen, I've been with the Bureau 15 years on all kinds of investigations.
2: And have you ever shot a man? When was the last time you were primary through the door?
4: I have to qualify, is that it?
2: You have to know what you're talking about.
4: <laughs> we'll talk another time.
1: He's such a great presence and so well used because he has such a that voice is insane. But he's playing such an officious twit. And Which is he, even better once they get to the once they so get good. to the actual room and they're. And, and he's he, all like, he is, like, like Keaton, he's like a guy who's in love with the idea of being a law yeah. enforcement agent.
0: But it's he's like so in love with some But he also building. knows like his limitations. Your primary, your secondary, and your point, man. You gonna
2: use a ram?
4: Yeah. Why?
2: The manager's door is metal. You know what I mean? They might all be. And a ram on a metal door makes a lot of noise for what good it
1: does. I got a shot clock round for my shotgun how to do the trick. Fine whatever.
0: It's the whatever.
1: <laughs> God, he was so good. I mean, I just think he could have been one of the greats. And you know, when I posted a, a picture from out of sight a couple of weeks ago, someone commented, I had listed a bunch of people that were great in it, and I didn't mention Wendell B. Harris Jr. And someone said, don't forget Wendell B. Harris Jr. I said, yes, we did a whole episode not knowing if this was a listener or not. Right. And they said, oh yeah, I love that one. I sent that episode to Wendell. It's the second person. Nice. And it's not the same person. So everybody seems to be in touch with Wendell except Except us. I-
0: <laughs> And so Wendell, if you're free, we you will know. come to you. I want to do
1: Road a sit down with him, Wendell B. Harris Jr. career spanning retrospective episode. I want to hear what happened, didn't happen. Yeah. I want to hear what could have happened. So Wendell, if you're there, if you're listening and you're in touch with Wendell, tell him to get in touch with us. You can email the pod at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com. You can call us. You can do all kinds of stuff. Let's make sure that Scott Frank gets a lot of the credit here for, I think, what was on his page. Right. Uh, Scott Frank's also written Little Man Tate, Dead Again. You like that? Yes. Uh, Malice, I am God. Is that the one? Is yeah, that, that, Ale- is that is that one, Is that yeah. uh, Alec Baldwin as the doctor? Yeah. Heaven's Prisoners, less good Alec Baldwin with what's her name? Uh, Terry Hatcher. Terry Hatcher. Get Shorty, Out of Sight, Minority Report. Cisco, the TV I'm a big series. Minority Report fan. Yeah. I think you are too. Yes. Although- Weren't you just talking about that a couple episodes yeah, ago? Yeah, yeah. Spielberg,
0: right? Exactly, yeah. You didn't You didn't like some aspect of it. It's more that I think when he, sometimes his humor oh, right. feels less yes. character-driven and more like just an add-on to make it all Minority
1: the Minority Report is not a movie where we need a lot of Spielbergian humorous touches.
0: Which is why the, like <laughs> one or two times it came in, I was like, oh, that could Come on, have so Steven. easily been cut.
1: The Interpreter, Marley, Marley and me. Okay. Hey, everyone's going to make a buck. Probably made more money on that than anything else he's done. The Wolverine. I was going to say, Logan. Logan, he won an Academy Award for. Yeah. Uh, so he's won two Academy Awards. So
0: there's no slouch, Logan, and for Out of Sight. Oh, no kidding. Yep, what Scott. For him, as far as alternative casting. Yeah. yeah. Put that one back. Sandra Bullock. Wow. You know, again, Tess McGill from Working Girl, the TV series, who almost was. Why do you always paint her with that Virginia? negative brush? It's just such a funny credit <laughs> that, uh, that. It really is. The fact that there ever was a. You know, Let a, me try and, and step Girl into TV an series. iconic role <laughs> in a destined to fail adaptation. So she was considered for Karen Sisko, as well as Karen. Karen. Karen Catherine Allen? Peter, Keener, uh, which I think is interesting. And, I, and, you know, this comes up sometimes. Like, I wonder, was she disappointed to have the kind of mm. not even third banana role. You know, she yeah. does a great job with the role that she has, but I wonder uh, what the emotional territory of that was yeah. afterwards. And then of course, the only other part that I was able to read any alternative casting for, because of course, George Clooney was, was already slated with and Steven Soderbergh jokes about like, I couldn't have gotten rid of him if I tried. Yes. But the only other thing was the character of Ripley. I read two possibilities. One, Gary Shandling <laughs> which I think would have been fantastic. That would have been great. Just because he sort of like Wendell B Harris well, Jr is in so few actual movies yes. that whenever he is it's such a such a strange presence. And Danny DeVito Sure. Which would have been very good. And he, of course, as as you had pointed out, is one of the producers on the film. And also
1: has a major role in Get Shorty and has one of my favorite scenes in any movie sending up a Hollywood actorly pomposity. They're sitting at a restaurant. Danny DeVito breezes in and he's Martin something or other, the most famous actor in Hollywood. And they just br- so quickly and brilliantly send up the thing of like not ordering from the menu, but because you're Martin Weir, you can order whatever the fuck you want. Right. Have you guys ordered? Because I really have something after this. Can we order? Excuse me, can you? Hi, what's your name? Stephanie. Hi, Stephanie. Um, I feel like an omelet. Can you make an egg white omelet, but with shallots? But with the shallots only slightly browned, very little olive oil, and no salt, OK? Why don't you bring one for the table? We'll pick on it. Mm-hmm. Oh, have, uh, oh, I know. How about having those uh, strawberry frappes? You know, little drinks with little strawberries in them? And bring two straws for Harry. I- I- I mean, if I see, I think right now I'm going to take like a year break from Out of Sight, but Out of Sight previously (laughs) is one of those movies, if it's on, I'm watching it all the way through. Get Shorty is still that. The other small cameo in the film, let it be said, Samuel L. Jackson Jr. uh, uh, Samuel L. Jackson Jr.? No. Could be. Samuel L. Jackson appearing (laughs) in the final scene as a prisoner that J-Lo's Marshall character has put in a prison van with Clooney and you come to learn the reason that she's put them together is he's broken out of a lot of prisons. What kind of a name is Hajjara? It's Islamic. What's it stand for? The Hajara was Muhammad's flight from Mecca in
4: 622. His flight? Brothers in Leavenworth gave me that name.
3: You're in Leavenworth, huh? Four time. Meaning? Meaning, time came, I left. You bust it out. I prefer to think of it as an exodus from an undesirable place. How long before they caught up with you? That time? There were others? Yeah. That was the ninth. The ninth? Well, 10 if you count that prison hospital in Ohio I walked away from. you want to a lot of walking, Henry. The gyra. The gyra?
4: Now we're off to Glades. Yeah, it looks that way. I was supposed to leave last night with the Lady Marshall, but for some reason she wanted to wait. She did, huh?
0: That was uh, a Scott Frank Elmore Leonard collab. What that ending? It's not. It was the ending not in the, from book. the book. Correct. Yes. And Scott Frank was saying in the commentary that he had a little bit of difficulty figuring out what, it, what yeah. it was, and I believe it was mostly his idea, but he did consult with Elmore Leonard, and I think they banged that out. And Soderbergh in collaboration. says they knew they needed someone with a massive like star
1: presence to be. That the Hegira character, because you had to feel something as an audience member, can't just be some guy. Right. The surprise of it being Samuel L. Jackson is great. I also thought it was funny that Soderbergh said he fought tooth and nail not to have the cutaway that exists twice in that scene to Karen Sisko's face shot through the windshield of the car. He had always had the back of her head. Jack's starting to put together that maybe she put them together in the van for him to learn how to break out of glades. And you see the back of her head, but there's two shots once it really becomes obvious that's what's going on where you see her and she has a sly smile on her face. And I think he said in the contract that he didn't want to put those in for like a long time. It was sort of stubbornly insistent on not having
0: them for some reason. he was also stubbornly insistent on the single take in the trunk scene and he (laughs) was wrong there too.
1: I think that your signature openings get appropriate amount of attention. I don't think, however, that your signature endings get enough. I think we need to center them in the narrative of the
0: podcast. So I'll cut it back into the center.
1: What Chris does is he plays the last line of dialogue from a famous or infamous or known or slightly well-known film. And what we want you to do is be first to figure out what it was. When the episode goes up, we'll put up a image from the film that you're talking about that doesn't give it away. And we will say, who can Identify Chris's final line from this week's episode. Oh, I love that. And we'll do I that think on, that's great. We'll do that on Facebook. Facebook finally has a reason for being. Anything else on Out of Sight? No, that's it. All right. Let's move on to Headlines. 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 I've got two for you, Chris, and they're okay. both related. You know, we talk a lot about robot singularity. Yes. To take Can't us wait. down. Well, we're not going to talk about that now. Oh, bummer. Animal singularity. Ooh. Two of them. First story- Wait, Two singularity? No, no. Sing- two oh, examples <laughs> of the forthcoming and I owe the joke on this to the boingboing.net headline writer. Scientists train rats to drive little cars to collect food and the rats like it is the headline. Okay. And this is an <laughs> experiment where researchers at the University of Richmond have trained rats to hop into little cars and drive them to collect food. The experiment suggests their brains have more plasticity than previously assumed. The article was shared on Facebook by the Boing Boing writer. They wrote, alternative title, rats train scientists to train them to drive little cars <laughs> to collect food. And the rats like it, which I thought was more funny. And then second in the Uh huh. unfortunately, this story has a tragic end. Oh, great. But it's the human who has a tragic end. Mm. So, uh, so, man. So What? <laughs> Well, I'm just saying, I mean, some people have more sympathy for animals than they do humankind, and some people have more sympathy for humankind than animals? Yeah, I man, think probably. Is that what I meant to say? <laughs> a lot of people do. Man shoots deer, deer wakes up, and kills man. Ooh, well, So, a hunter shot a deer, it was a big buck, it had a giant rack, he approached the deer, the deer was not dead,
0: leapt awake, and impaled the man through the chest with his antlers. You know, that was actually originally- I guess from the the novel out of sight, that's that's how it ends. <laughs> Look, it's coming. It's just yeah. about which side you'd plan to be on. The thing that comes up on Twitter or like Facebook or whatever, every now and again of like a picture of a raccoon on top of a yes. cow. Right. And somebody's like, yep, they're doing it. They're, they're doing it. it. It's coming. And uh, I laugh every time. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> I have one which I thought was, which I thought you might find interesting. Amazon Shopper is blasted for using a snap of herself posing next to a coffin with her review of the perfect blue dress she bought on the site. I can't possibly follow that sentence that you just said. One woman was leaving a review on Amazon saying like, hey, this dress is great. Like it fit well in uh-huh. a real shade of blue. And she put a picture of herself in it. And it was a picture of her at a funeral with somebody's casket. Oh, I can't. okay. And so, then people were like- She's not in the casket. No, she's not in the casket. Okay, that would've been better. <laughs> that would've been, I think we probably would've heard it from bigger news sources. <laughs> anyway, what interested me about this story is not so much that, you know, yeah, so she had a picture of herself that she thought looked good at mm-hmm. a funeral. Like, sure. who cares? But, of course, the vitriol of everybody was oh, like, what course. is wrong with you? Hey, guy's already dead, so no offense there. The one person not complaining is the person in the casket.
1: Funerals are hard enough. I mean, anything that can kind of lighten the mood, I think we're all for.
0: And look, how easy is it to get a good picture of yourself?
1: True. No, you get one that turns you out. get right, one, regardless of circumstance. I don't care what's in the background. Well, speaking of funerals, you saw the story a couple of weeks ago. The Irish guy who pranked all of his friends by playing a recording of himself. Saying like, "Hey, what's going on? I'm still, I'm still alive. Get me out of here! Did you see that? It's hilarious." Hello, 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 let me out. Where the fuck are we? Hello, hello, let me out. The fucking dive in here.
0: Very funny. That's funny because the second headline I have was, Grandmother 70 is saved from being cremated alive when her husband noticed she was still breathing. (laughs) This was in Thailand, and I think the woman was actually lying in state for three days, and they kind of thought she was dead, but then as like doing the last, Uh before putting her in the thing, turned out she was still alive. That sounds too bad to be true, (laughs) if that's a thing. Do you have any other headlines? Uh, That's
1: it. Okay. Chris, second installment of our new segment, Bomb Squad. Yes. Are you excited? Very. Thank you. Well, I loved the first one, and again, this is not coming from a mean-spirited place. This is coming from a place of understanding that a film is good because of the efforts of so
0: many elements that it's almost impossible to wrangle together. And on the commentary, Steven Soderbergh was even talking about how little he liked the trailer for Out of Sight originally. Yes, that's you right. Know, this is a choice people make, and you know, yep. sometimes it goes well or not. You know, so this is no. Look, this is sometimes you make a
1: trailer, good trailer, bad movie, bad trailer,
0: good movie. Yeah. We're not making a judgment. I'm just saying that- We're making a judgment on the trailer. I'm making a judgment yeah. on the
1: trailer. And how it looks. And this week's Bomb Squad, oh boy. This is Ed Norton's Motherless Brooklyn.
6: Okay, listen, I got something wrong with me. That's the first thing to know. I got threads in my head. I got threads in my head, man. I twitch and shout a lot. If- Makes me look like a damn freak show. Can't you ever cut that out? I'm so- Touch it, Bailey. I'm sorry but inside my head's an even bigger mess. I can't stop twisting things around, words and sounds especially. Have to keep playing with them until they come out right. Sorry.
2: Geez, forget I asked.
6: Like I said, a damn mess. Then I started working for Frank. Frank Minna, Private Eye. Boys. Frank, frankly, Frankity Franco. He's the one who taught me how to use my head, turned it into a strength. He gave me a place in this crappy world until I screwed up. Frank!
0: she's in trouble now. Ooh. Does anybody know what Frank was into on this?
6: There's something going down and it's big and they were not happy about what he found. We find who did this and we square accounts. If I figure it out, I'm gonna make him regret it. I promise you that. That's her. That's the girl that Frank was following. I think she found something.
4: What happens to poor people in this city wasn't news yesterday, and it won't be tomorrow. Where's everybody go? Mostly just disappear. This town is run by Moses Randolph. When someone isn't seen for what they truly are, that's a very dangerous thing. Do you have the first inkling how power works? Power
5: is knowing that you can do whatever you want, and not one person can stop you.
1: Okay. Uh, I'm calling it at one minute, (laughs) 50 seconds. The problem with the trailer as I see it, there's a production value problem. It just doesn't quite feel as cinematically epic because let's face it, making a feature film out of a Jonathan Lethem novel is probably not a 50 or $150 million enterprise. I remember reading about this when Edward Norton acquired the rights. It's from writer-director Edward Norton. That's my other death knell. Listen- Love you, actors. Some of you make great directors. However... Listen, you never know until you try. (laughs) I think you know. As a crime aficionado, I have a set against a literary author slumming it in the crime genre, as Jonathan Lethem sort of did. Now, he's trying to write a, a, a detective novel. I think those of us that love the genre and appreciate authors like... Elmore Leonard or Philip Kerr or John Le Carré, who are literary within the construct of this genre, it's hard for someone to come from the outside
0: and get into us. And I'm not accepting of that. Okay. Because I mean, who knows? Jonathan Lethem, you know, he is not all highbrow. He was a comic book reader and stuff like that. Like, he might be a genre fiction fan before he maybe, became, but, you know, became what he is. He's not a guy that has
1: any bona fides in our world. Edward Norton was impressed. And that is Bomb Squad.
0: Again, let's see. I'm making I, some bold predictions, and I think in the next few weeks, we're either going be rubes or geniuses. Me, I think I would have... Not even noticed that this movie existed, but now I, I'm going to be watching the box office okay. eagerly. Uh, we have a little time for Latchkey TV
1: oh. if you want to jump in. Hello? <laughs> I'm just going to go really quickly. Go for it. So I'm home. It's two o'clock. I'm going to start watching Alive and Well on USA. It's a news magazine. Just because of the juxtaposition of these two stories... And what audience this is for. The conclusion of an interview with Milton Berle. Skin care tips for new moms. But I think that's like counter-programming. He's like, we've got
0: everybody. We've got both
1: ends yeah. of the spectrum. <laughs> He's going to watch the first half hour and she'll watch (laughs) the second. I don't know.
0: 230, Frugal Gourmet. Did you ever watch that growing up? No. Jeff Smith. I didn't quite understand
1: what the word frugal meant. Well, it was an early cooking show. Jeff Smith fronted it. He was a very avuncular, genial man. He later had some scandalous issues, which I won't get into here. But Frugal Gourmet was a great show in the 80s and early 90s. I used to watch that a lot. Another show, this came up. This sounded familiar. I'm not sure because I watched it or maybe you referenced it. Uh Uh-huh.
0: Three o'clock, Denmark's Star Spangled. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> it does sound familiar. I think it might have been on a previous episode. I think it was when Nick Blake on our right. airplane episode, I believe he watched it. It's a look at Denmark's week-long
1: celebration of America's Independence Day.
0: What That's the so nice. Fuck? When's the last time we did
1: anything yeah. for Denmark? 4 p.m. Speaking of crime drama, uh-huh. underrated crime series, Policewoman. Mm. Starring Angie Dickinson, I saw a little of an episode of this the other day, dude. Angie Dickinson was kicking ass in Police Woman. Really? Yes. Like I don't think I've ever seen an episode. She was throwing motherfuckers to the ground and taking names and not taking any shit from the man. Huh. Shout out to Police Woman. That's an underappreciated crime drama of its era. Then I wanted to play you this, Chris, because I'd never heard of this. Have you heard of a cartoon called Transor Z?
4: The minds of mortal men, the mightiest of machines.
1: Look how violent this gets right here. Just like a snake monster destroying people.
0: Yeah, this gets
1: kid. this gets violent. Yeah. Look at this guy gets his arm ripped off. And then but look, the arm is a bomb. Well, you know what? I knew that. You did? Well, wow. does that does that happen somewhere else? With all might, Transformers? i
4: right. He's a protector of peace so powerful. He cannot be destroyed. He
1: cannot be destroyed, Chris. And yeah, everybody talks a big game. <laughs> Way to um like whatever the opposite of bearing the lead is. If he can't be destructive, then why the hell
0: am I bothering to watch?
1: There's no, you just <laughs> yeah, eliminated any mistakes. peril.
0: <laughs> no, the thing I was going to say is I've never seen that cartoon, but I've seen have. that robot before. Oh, you have? That was a robot that I remember like friends had. Oh, yeah, that shot the arm out. That shot the arm out. So that's how I knew that the arm would come I remember off. that too, but I, I remember thought it was the, the same toy. I never got, I never saw it at a toy store, but I thought it was so cool. I didn't know that it had, I mean, I should have known yeah. that it would have come from a cartoon or that there'd be a cartoon with it.
1: Oh, and then I'm going to choose Jefferson's just because I found the other day this bizarre story about Sherman Helmsley, which I wanted to share with you. Uh, Jefferson's, despite George's warning, Florence lends money to her shady cousin. I came across this the other day, Chris. Are you familiar with the 60s freak out acid trip band Gong? No. Matt, cut in some representative psychedelic brainage from Gong. Having heard that, Chris, you can imagine how bizarre it would be to find out that Sherman Helmsley, George Jefferson himself, was apparently a lifelong prog rock obsessive. No kidding. And David Allen, who was the founder of this insane LSD-driven prog rock act, told a reporter that he met Sherman Helmsley in 78 or 79, and he didn't have any idea being English who Sherman Helmsley was, what the Jeffers were. But Sherman Helmsley kept calling, saying, like, I'm your biggest fan. I want to fly <laughs> you here. We're going to put flying teapots all up and down Sunset Strip, because that was like a thing an imagery that they had from their music. Okay. And I thought, geez, this guy's a lunatic. But he kept it up. So he said, hey, listen, can you get us tickets to L.A. via Jamaica? I want to go there to make a reggae track and have a honeymoon with my girlfriend. And he said, sure, I'll get you two tickets. Uh, and apparently again, this is a very untrustworthy narrator, but he says Sherman Hemsley sent him two tickets to Jamaica and they got into a limo and there was a joint being passed around and the lead singer of this crazy acid band said, sorry, man, I don't smoke. And Sherman said, you don't smoke and you're from Gong? (laughs) And then he goes on to claim all this crazy stuff that Sherman had an LSD laboratory in his basement and there was all this kind of prog rock stuff and the duct tape over the windows and flying teapot playing on a tape loop, voluptuous girls stoned and wobbling around naked. I don't know. I don't know. This is a true story. This is
0: as recounted in Magnet magazine if you're interested, but it sounds too good. Oh, but now I want to listen to Gong. You do. With my Zanzor. What is it? Tanzor? I don't know. What's that robot that we were just looking at? Oh, Transor. Transor. Played Transor Z. Play with my Transor Z and yeah. listen to my gong. Now you
1: mentioned that shooting hand, I do remember that. I wonder yeah, if that's the same toy.
0: Um, anyway, that's it, Chris. I gotta go. Uh, okay, until next week, as much fun and as sexy as crime looks in this movie, it doesn't always work out that way.
5: Hey, isn't that Malcolm there?
4: I'll bet I ain't got no spare.